Welcome back to another episode of the B2B Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. On the podcast today, I have Teresa Lina, who is the author of the number one best-selling Amazon book, Be the Go-To, How to Own Your Competitive Market, Charge More, and Have Customers Love You for It. She's also a well-known strategy and marketing thought leader who has helped companies achieve sustainable differentiation and evolve in a rapidly changing environment, which we're in today. And by the way, Teresa also works as part of the team at Stanford University. The key question we break down today is how your startup can stand out in an ultra-competitive and rapid-evolving business space. In a market filled with businesses that offer the same things, the same service, and the same value, making sure your customers notice you is a tremendous task to achieve. Today, Teresa breaks down the Apollo Method, the system that she says is the secret to standing out as a brand. The method is simple and actionable and something that any startup can apply. And in this episode, she breaks down the details. Listen to find out how your startup can become the go-to and even charge more. Enjoy, and now on to the interview. Hello, Teresa. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, it's great to have you. To get started, why don't you share with the audience a little bit about your background and what you guys are doing today, and then I really want to get into why I invited you on the show. Terrific. Yes, I started my career with Accenture right out of college, and I went into just the mainstream business doing systems information systems, work systems integration. And then I became a, actually, I was the first person on the consulting side to become a full-time industry marketing executive with them and help launch a business unit that focused on the telecommunications industry. And I learned a lot during that time that actually got incorporated into the book. And I've dedicated my book to the partner I was working for on that initiative because it was a tremendous experience to be involved in starting a business within the business and growing it from ground zero to over $800 million in revenue organically in less than a decade. And we learned a lot about breaking into a new market, about breaking into a market where the current was running. We were swimming against the current because uh, that was an industry at the time that did not welcome outsiders. We were starting to decouple ourselves as an organization from the accounting firm we were part of at the time. So we had a branding problem. You know, there were a lot of, a lot of reasons we should not have succeeded. And one of the inspirations for the book was going back later and looking at what did we do to make that work? That was part of what I incorporated into the Apollo method for market dominance that I discussed in the book after a while and went to start my own consulting business and actually continued to consult back to them and work with other business units around the company and did a little side project and educational entertainment for kids, which is a whole different story. And then continued with the consulting over the years, working initially mainly with IT services companies and then eventually more broadly with technology services and then just regular technology products and services companies. And now I work actually with other types of companies as well. Some of the methods that we had to do by necessity in those sectors early on became necessities for other industries as well. We can talk about that. I'm sure you'll be able to relate to this. 
And then I've been involved with Stanford for about 15 years now in various capacities. Uh, currently, I um, am on the teaching team for several courses in their ex executive education program. So I've been around the block. I've spent a lot of time on the East Coast. I'm originally from the East Coast, and then I came out to the West Coast a little over 20 years ago to get involved in Silicon Valley. So I've been active there for quite a while. Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, we'll get into the book in a second because I think it's really well done. And I love kind of the, the backstory of how you got to writing the book. But from a marketing or market standpoint, who you work with today, is it mostly in the B2B space, B2C? Because I know your methodology and maybe we should talk a little bit about your you know, methodology, really helping yeah. companies. And I'm going to completely oversimplify this, so please... <laughs> <laughs> add your color to it. But, you know, it's really about differentiation of your message and how you stand out against your competition. And yeah, just who, who are you working with today? I know this applies. We were talking a little bit off on any company and a lot of companies really struggle with this concept. But where would you say your core focus is today? Well, my personal experience is primarily B2B enterprise technology. And if I wanted to get even more specific, I have tended to focus and specialize in companies that primarily sell complex solutions at senior level executive, at the senior levels of companies, large or small, but mostly large. So even though some of my clients may be small companies, their targets are larger companies or mid-sized companies, and they're trying to sell into senior executives or senior teams or the teams that lead major initiatives for the company, mostly on the customer-facing side. If you were to split the company into customer-facing and then sort of back office support processes like finance, HR, et cetera, I mostly have focused on the customer-facing side. So complex business solutions that focus, that have to do with the customer in some way. Less yeah. experience for me on the supply chain side. Yeah, you and I kind of share that background. I, I got into managed consulting later versus earlier in my career, but it really uh -huh. was around enterprise B2B, and we probably could have used your help <laughs> over years ago <laughs> with a few of these companies. But I did have the opportunity to work in the SaaS space for about a year and a half, and it really opened my eyes coming mm -hmm. from what I would call legacy B2B or traditional B2B. Yeah. And what do you mean you have no outbound sales efforts? You mean you're just converting inbound leads? How in the world does that work? And, you know, fast forward to today, and I think that's the, the ideal world that all B2B companies need to be living when or at least driving towards that. So before we get into the book, I'm just curious with your perspective, are you seeing finally that shift? I've been yelling from the mountaintop, hey, you need to think about this thing different. Your buyers want to buy different. And they're like, no, we're unique. We're unique snowflake. We're, our industry's different. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> they're just slower. <laughs> but I'm just curious if you're seeing that now that transition or people at least starting to recognize the need to transition to a more modern, what I would call a modern business model. Yes, I see it on multiple fronts. Certainly, it's interesting. I used to tell people that the way you market a B2C company and the way you market a B2B company were completely different animals, and you really could not switch back and forth between those two types of businesses. It just was so completely different. But what's interesting is I'm starting to see a little bit of emerging where B2B companies are taking on some of those B2C-style digital marketing approaches for in driving inbound demand. 
And on the B2C side, you see a little bit more embracing of, like, let's take content marketing. People talk about that as if it's a relatively, especially when it first started being talked about, it was as if it was a new concept. You know, B2B companies have been doing that since the beginning of time, especially services companies, because that, you know, sharing your expertise and educating the market was the main way, really one of the few ways you had of letting them see what you did before they actually bought it. So I see a cross-pollination of techniques and certainly digital marketing potential is expanding by the day because of technology. And it used to be very difficult to find out who your customers were out there and reach them and identify who your prospects were. And actually, even with the old school direct marketing efforts, you know, the accuracy, let's go into the dark ages and talk about mailing lists. Yeah, I was there. <laughs> you know, yeah, I the, sold them. <laughs> the quality of what was on, whatever you, all that data that you bought. And even today, it's still relatively unreliable, especially on the B2B side especially when you have complex sales where you have multiple stakeholders, multiple people are going to be involved in the decision, multiple people are going to be impacted. You know, it's very difficult to identify who those people are supposed to be. But I have been hearing about some pretty interesting services and technologies that claim to do a better job. And then there are companies out there that specialize in collecting the names of who those people are in organizations Again, the accuracy is often questionable, but the need for that more direct approach has definitely increased. And that is much more how how people are buying, even senior executives now, which this would never have happened a few years ago, but even the most senior executives go hunting around online to learn about a topic. You know, a few years ago, they would have delegated that to a minion who would then go do the research, put a brief together and come back to the executive. And now people just hop on and do their own and learn on their own. And so that's calling for very different ways of reaching out to these executives and making sure you're going to appear when they go looking. Yeah, no, I think 100% right. And I had a guest on, wow, it's probably two months ago, Anthony Blattner, who started a LinkedIn agency, really just a paid Mm -hmm. ad LinkedIn agency. And it was really eye-opening for me because of, well, the LinkedIn, the the quality of their accuracy of their data is really good. And the ability to be able to target people in, you know, your ideal customer profile, you know, it's not cheap, but it's mm-hmm. highly effective. If you can get the right messaging, if you got the right off, you know, you're hitting the, the, the right folks. So I'm excited. I think the time is finally catching up right in, you know, the pandemic has created, you know, I think it was Mark Cuban that said never better time to start a business because the playing field has been leveled. Absolutely. So I think, yeah. yeah. A great so, time to start a business. Great I mean, time. Yeah. Another episode on, yeah. <laughs> on this evolution. But I do want to, to get into the book because I really enjoyed it called The Be the Go-To and a recent release, right? A couple months. It is ago. June. It just came oh, out June. in June. Yeah. Perfect. And I told you offline, I read the Kindle version of it, but I just ordered the hard copy so I could actually make notes. I'm still learning how to make notes on the Kindle, but it's not, I like to have my pages that I can put sticky notes in it. So yeah. really Looking enjoyed it. Pile. And I want to get into 
kind of the approach because I think it's going to be so important and valuable for my audience to hear this, especially when you're early on. I know you work with enterprise where they're trying to get and refine and you're, you're trying to get them to, to target their messaging and their approach. So I think it makes sense. But before we get into, and I know it's the third time I said before we get into the book, I'd love to, for you to tell the story of, of why you wrote the book and you know why now. A little ways into my consulting business, I had some longtime clients, including some of my eccentric colleagues who had known me forever and knew what was different about the way I approached projects and the way my teams approached projects. And even they started pushing back on my pricing. And I would say, you know that nobody else could come in and do this the way we're doing it. And they'd say, yeah, 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 but I can get you know, a writer for a lot less, or I can get a, a digital marketer for a lot less, or whatever it may be, or, or even a strategist. I really started feeling some frustration with that and was on the phone one day with a colleague of mine, and she was actually one of my subcontractors. And she was telling me about a friend of hers who was literally charging $50,000 a day, pretty much the same work we were doing. And I was so blown away. I said, how in the heck is she doing that? And we started talking about it. And I say in the book that I was simultaneously incredibly envious and incredibly excited at the sense and inspired at the same time. And I started looking around at other companies in the market, and then I also looked at our Accenture experience, and I realized that there's something they're doing that's different. Even though we're doing great work, and this is a lot of the defense I hear from other companies, yeah, but we have the best people, we do have the best yeah. methodology, we have the, you know, but somehow we were missing something. And so I decided to study it, and I did research for several years talking to executives hundreds of executives studying companies, evaluating and picking apart and reverse engineering what we had done with the business at Accenture. And that's how I came up with this methodology. And I talked before with other audiences about how I was literally sitting on an airplane. I still remember the ride, sitting on an airplane on my way to Chicago for a client meeting trying to think about, you know, what do I need to do differently with my business? What does my strategy need to be? And uh, at Stanford, we teach the notion of drawing out, diagramming out your strategy logic. I instinctively did that on the airplane that day, laying it out. And then I looked at it and I realized, oh my God, this is what all of our clients need to be doing. So I codified it into a methodology and as I was reading about looking for different ways to kind of package this and name it, I ran across the Apollo space program story again, and I had grown up with people who had worked on that program. So I was very familiar with it. I grew up in an area with a lot of NASA engineers. I was reading again about the sort of the meta story with the Apollo method, the Apollo space program and realized, oh, that's a perfect metaphor. What it took to put a man on the moon is pretty much the same as what it takes to conceptually, from a strategy logic standpoint, conceptually it's the same as what you need to do to achieve your own moonshot, to get out there and become the go-to in a market and really be that name that everybody seeks out. It's that first name that comes to mind when people think of a particular issue or problem or opportunity. People come to you immediately they don't haggle with you on price because they know that the value is going to be so superior 
to what they're going to pay. And they clamor, people clamor to work with you or buy from you or even work for you. So that became the Apollo method for market dominance, which I lay out in the book in detail, step by step, so that anybody can go do it. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think I heard you tell the story, I read it somewhere, that you thought this book had been written a few times <laughs> before you actually yeah. got Then when you actually read the book or heard the author, realized that it is different, right? Can you share? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I came up with the Apollo method about 20 years ago. And I knew immediately that it really should be a book. But at the time, it was very focused on IT. As I mentioned before, you know, I was really focused on IT services. And this problem was rampant because when you're a service, it's impossible for the market to know what they're going to get. Or, and it's very difficult for them to see the differences between you and another entity before they've actually bought what you offer. But I didn't write it as a book right away. I didn't feel the market was quite ready. And as time went on, it just seemed so common sense to me. And I did see people out in the market talking about different dimensions of this. And I kept waiting for it to all come together in one place. It's a huge undertaking to write a book. It's expensive in terms of the time. It's a big investment. And it's a huge commitment afterwards to go out and trumpet it and you know, market right, it good stuff. and raise visibility about it. So I kept trying to find reasons to not write it. And actually, I came back from a trip overseas. My family and I took a year off to go travel around the world. And I came back from that thinking, okay, surely this book is no longer needed. And as I was out exploring the market and trying to figure out how I was going to plug back in, and it you know, had been a bit of a sabbatical, and I was talking to people and looking at what was going on out there. And I realized, oh my God, the problem is worse than ever. Now with digital marketing, everybody's online. Everybody looks and sounds exactly the same. We're still not pulling all these pieces together. So I decided to go ahead and write it and put it out there. Yeah, you're so right. And we were talking a little bit before we started. I still can't believe that this day and age that this concept of differentiation and being the go-to company is so tough for so many companies, right? It, because yeah. it, it makes sense, differentiation. Again, my super simple is, you know, what problem do you solve? How do you solve it? How do you solve it differently? And can you prove it, right? It yeah. seems so simple on the surface. And even looking through your book, you know, your book makes perfect sense. It walks people through. And I love how you actually provide not only the examples, but, you know, worksheets and not assessments, what's the right, little exercises to do tools. it. In. Yeah, lots tools. of tools. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And it still amazes me to this day, the number of companies that lead with features and benefits and those types of things. So yeah, this book, like I said, I wish you would have written this book four or five years ago it would have helped me you know, get further quicker. <laughs> but yeah, so let's, I guess one question I have, and I heard you read this or heard you talk about somewhere is, you know, there's a lot of people that talk about with startups, you know, you had a category creation, you got to be the category king which i think in most common definitions you know the top one maybe two and i don't want to say put words in your mouth that you push back and just said may not be realistic for 90 uh percent -huh. of the companies that are out there so i'd love to get your perspective on that before we kind of dig into the book yes uh there are some books out there that really emphasize the importance of i guess the benefit and value of creating a new category and seeking to dominate that category. And yes, that is a valid strategy, but I personally don't believe it's completely necessary. 
I think the challenge is that some of those sources talk about it as if it's the only way to go out and really dominate a market and really achieve some of these goals of standing apart and being clearly differentiated on a sustainable basis. And my point of view is that if you really focus on the market, if you're market driven and have a market orientation and you're focused on the customer and customer driven, so within that market, the customers, and you really build your orientation around a market problem, a common, critical, urgent market problem that people are desperate to solve, and you become the most effective at solving that problem and owning that problem. And I don't mean just coming up with some solution that works today, but I mean intellectual ownership for that problem so that you live, breathe, eat that issue. You study it. You invest in where it's going in the future so that you can lead the market toward a vision for where they need to be going. You're not just solving the here and now problem, but you're also looking out on the horizon. And if you do that for a market, they will be beholden to you. They will love you. They will follow you and really establish yourself as the dominant force in that market. So you can still, it can still be an existing category. And the challenge with category creation is it's very expensive. You know, some VCs love it. If you're talking about the VC market, which not everybody, I know in Silicon Valley, we act as if it's the only, the end all be all and the only way to go out and build a business. And it's not. But I know some VCs love it. Some VCs actually don't. You're fighting an uphill battle to go create a new category. We want to, you know, pick something where there's already momentum, pick a market where we've already got demand, we've already got momentum and people already understand it. The analysts already have, you, you already fit into buckets in among the analysts like Gartner and Forrester and so on. And even the financial investors, you'll have quicker road to momentum and traction if you pick an existing category. So there are two different options. I just personally don't believe that category creation is the only option, even though I have been involved in category creation efforts. And at some companies I've worked with, that was part of the strategy, but I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. And even looking at, you know, the, the VC or just, you know, startups in general, if we focus on the startups with, with taking this approach, you know, less than 1%, you know, reach 10 million in revenue. And you can factor out some of the solopreneurs and a lot of other businesses. But, you know, I've always contended that 1% isn't an idea problem. It's an execution problem. And right. if everybody was going to create a new category, we'd have more than 1% that actually get to that market. Not that 10 million is kind of an arbitrary number, but it's a good number to scale. If you get there, you've got a lot of momentum, you got a lot of customers. And I think going back to even what you were talking about, the why, right? If it's, you know, margins <laughs> and sustainability because you can charge a premium, you know, the $50,000 a day versus 10. Because once you get into that, you know, race to either technology or price, it's a race to the bottom. And, you know, that's what I really like. And I would encourage our audience to think about this as they're building their business, no matter where they are, to, to if you're not doing this, think about how to pivot and start to frame your growth and your company this way versus, you know, here's our seven features and benefits and, you know, our technology is better than X, Y, Z. It may be, but three months from now, it probably won't be. So how are you telling a different story? 
Yeah, and you're transitioning from a cost plus model to a value driven model. And I mean, with a value driven model, you could be charging a million dollars a day. You know, 50,000 to some people isn't even that much right there. In fact, I kind of thought, oh gosh, is that story actually going to be a very effective opening to the book? Because <laughs> for some people, that's peanuts. Those are people who got their head around what value we're delivering to the market and you know, how the market values it, not how you value it. So a big key is getting away from that cost plus mentality of here's what it costs us to provide it. We're going to add a margin on top of that. And that's our price. Instead, it's looking at how do we deliver this mind blowing outcome that, you know, they then are evaluating based on what they're getting as opposed to what it's costing you right. to provide it. Yeah, it's just a, a shift, a mentality yeah. shift and a, a perception. Yeah. So, And so of course, the big goal is margins, right? right. I mean, the problem for these companies across the board is thin, gross margins. And, you know, a lot of startups focus on EBITDA, which, you know, in some ways is the same, except EBITDA includes a lot of other discretionary spending. Your gross margins give you that discretionary spending. Personally, it's interesting I rarely hear people talk about their gross margins. I rarely see it in the literature and, you know, in business articles that you read across all of, you know, business publications, vertical trade publications, and even on LinkedIn and so forth. So personally, I would like to see a total maniacal focus on it because without those margins, you can't grow. You don't have money to play with. You don't have money to put into marketing. You don't have money to put into R&D and you can't fuel your future. So that's one I don't hear enough about. And then your point about the differentiation, which of course the two are connected without the differentiation, you don't get those, you don't increase customers' willingness to pay and you don't get those healthy margins. But again, I would, part of the goal with the book is I would like to see people totally obsessed with differentiation, sustainable differentiation. A hundred percent. And anytime you say it, I'm going to amplify it because I, I'm a hundred percent behind and believe that. And it's, it's really hard for companies to get out of that. And, you know, one of the things I've been you know, preaching a lot, one of a hundred percent also agree with you on the margins, the gross margin aspect of it, because that's how it's going to fuel your, the rest of your growth. And, you know, it still shocks me the number of startups that don't even understand what their numbers are at any mm -hmm. stage. So mm -hmm. again, if you take anything out of this from a financial, understand what your gross margins are, because that's the math equation that's going to help you scale down the road. So maybe that's a good transition or segue into if I'm a B2B founder, I think about starting a company and, you know, we can use your book or the method, you know, without giving it away, because I highly encourage everybody to go pick up the book and also visit the website. There's a ton of great content on your website, which we'll, we'll get to at the end. But so if I'm a B2B founder, what's kind of your, let's, let's do a high level kind of walkthrough of how you would encourage them to kind of think about their business as they're starting to, or I should say, rethink about their business. Okay. I won't go into a lot of detail here, but there are four key pieces to the methodology. And the book lays out, in fact, if you follow the book, you come away with your high level strategy for how you go out and differentiate and establish yourself as the go-to. You can actually boil it down to a one page plan. And I provide a template for that in the book and on the website. 
So the first step is really one of the most critical, which is where you decide what you want to mean in the market. So the four steps are launch, ignite, navigate, and accelerate. And I'll just give a 10-second step through of each of those four pieces, and we can dive into whatever you want. So with launch, you're really deciding what do we want to mean in the market? So what market do we want to own? And what problem within that market do we want to take intellectual ownership for? What's our point of view around that problem? And then what's our unique approach to solving that problem conceptually? And then you put a stake in the ground, you declare to the market that you intend to own that problem. You take ownership for it, you announce your ownership for it. Then with Ignite, this is the phase that a lot of us would often think of as market development and PR and early sales activity and so forth. But this is where your goal is to ignite a movement in the marketplace around your point of view and approach. And there's some specific strategies that I lay out in the methodology in the book that a lot of people fail to do, and this is especially applicable to B2B, is leveraging the power brokers in your market. In most markets, there are only a handful of power brokers, maybe, especially B2B. I mean, we're talking maybe a dozen people that are connected to pretty much everyone in the industry. And the more specific you are in launch, the more narrowly you define your market. And when you're small, when you're a startup, you want to be really specific, really narrow. Jeff Bezos started Amazon just focused on books. Walt Disney started with one character, one one cartoon character. In fact, his first one got stolen from him and then he came up with Mickey Mouse. So Tesla started with just the Roadster, right? So you want to be very, back in launch, you want to be very narrow enough for as appropriate for your size and your resources. Salesforce started as just a Salesforce automation tool for salespeople. It was, they stripped out all of the unnecessary Siebel functionality, which was their precursor. It was the dominant force, which a lot of your listeners may not have even ever heard of. And Mark Benioff came and they literally stripped out, they started with Siebel and stripped away all the extraneous stuff. And their goal was to make it create something much simpler. So now with Ignite, you're going out there to these power brokers who have tentacles out to the entire industry and you get them on board with your point of view. Now, In the early parts of this, you may just be having conversations with them and you may be evolving your point of view and and tweaking it and improving it as you're having these conversations. But you get out there, you sell them first. So Steve Jobs with iTunes went out and met with all the key music industry executives starting at the top of the pyramid. And then once he got them on board, others started to fall. And that's kind of the strategy you want to employ in Ignite. This is also where, you know, some of these power brokers may include some members of the media, key publications and websites, key bloggers, uh, specific events that you may speak at, et cetera. And I also share in the book a detailed explanation of the media food chain, which also applies to events. You could think of it almost as more of a PR food chain, but it's very important to understand how this works out there in the real world, or you'll spin your wheels and burn up a lot of time and money and get nowhere. Uh, So it's important to understand where each sector has feeder publications and blogs and events and so forth, that the higher up 
the more valuable ones pay attention to in figuring out what their agenda is. So even if you just read that chapter of the book, I think you'd get enormous value in understanding how to focus your efforts when it comes to PR and some of that early influencer outreach, because a lot of companies waste huge amounts of money trying to go about it the wrong way. So with Ignite, your main goal is to get some momentum out there, start a movement and get other people evangelizing the message on on your behalf. So it's not about your solution as much. It's about your point of view and taking the market along with their vision. Mark Benioff got out there. He did not talk about salesforce.com. He talked about killing software. His whole point of view was we have got to get rid of our dependence on these large enterprise software packages that take years to implement, cost tens of millions to implement. And, you know, it's ridiculous. And by the time you get it installed, it's out of date. He did an enormous Ignite effort out there to build awareness for this message. And, you know, he became the Pied Piper for the message around getting rid of enterprise software. So he was a perfect example of Ignite in action as he built Salesforce. Yeah, I love that case study. I mean, in many different aspects, prototypical modern company that keeps inventing themselves. So they're not Microsoft, I think was in a legacy that's figured out how to kind of reinvent themselves. A couple of questions before we move to, you know, navigate and accelerate. So if I'm looking to launch and I'm owning the problem, which I absolutely love that approach, is it a... How much would you recommend doing customer surveys or customer outreach to understand, is this the problem I'm really solving? Because I can sit here and say, hey, I'm solving these three problems, but one, either the customer doesn't recognize it as a problem, or two, they view it, you're solving a different problem. So how much would you recommend getting the customer insight into the, kind of into the launch phase of when you're doing this? A lot, yes. You are out there, when you're first starting to work on this, You must have conversations out there in the market. You cannot sit back in your office or, you know, in your cabin in the mountains pontificating to yourself about what needs to be done. You have to be out there having conversations. So, of course, do a lot of reading and research, but then also go talk to experts, talk to people who talk to a lot of people and talk to customers. You know, individual customers are moderately reliable because you're getting just their perspective, but it's definitely still valuable. So part of what you want to do is keep talking to people until you're not hearing anything new. Gather as many different points of perspectives as you can, and you'll start to hear some themes bubble up and you'll start to hear them talk about their frustrations, what's not working. Now, a mistake I do see even large companies make is sometimes they'll find those three customers that have told them, yes, 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 we love that, and they build it, and then those three customers turn out to be the only three that they have. (laughs) Now, on the other hand, there are some offerings where you only need to sell it a few times, and you've made a couple hundred million dollars. You know, when we're talking about big, you know, I worked on a solution with one company, it was a $40 million sale, a $40 million solution. Wow. That, you know, just a couple conversions for them were fine because they didn't have to invest a whole lot to develop the solution. It consisted of components that they already had in the company. All they had to do was put it together 
those couple of clients and they made enormous revenues and margins on that. So each situation is different, but you do want to get a lot of firsthand input. And, you know, as I talk about in the book, putting together an executive briefing presentation as part of Ignite. And these phases, one thing I didn't say up front, is the phases, I lay them out in the book as if you're going to do them sequentially, but very often in reality, you're doing some concurrently, or you're doing layers of all four at a time, peeling the onion on that. With launch, sometimes you've come up with your concept and your point of view and your approach and so forth. And then you get out into Ignite and you start having conversations with power brokers and influencers and they start giving you feedback and you evolve it. So with, for example, with Accenture, when we first started that business unit I mentioned, we had a briefing presentation and my boss would go out, meet with executives, senior executives at the different telecommunications providers. He'd come back to the office He'd have all this feedback and reaction and all the results of these conversations. We'd rework the presentation and he'd go back out and give it again. And almost every single time he gave it, we came back and reworked it. And each time the message got more and more honed, it got more direct. It really started speaking to the market in a very precise way that really resonated with them. So you want to incorporate constant learning and continuous improvement. In, in what you're doing. So treat it more as a living document versus yeah. a time and place, the timestamp. No, I think that, that makes a ton of sense. And one of my favorite exercises that you had in the book, and I'll butcher the name a little bit, is when you suggest to companies to you know, find three or four folks that you know, show them or lead them to the website of three or four of your competitors and then your own, that hopefully they don't know much about the industry and have them tell you what those companies do. I love that idea. And I think many would still fail, right? Because they don't, it's really hard. And I'm guilty of, I've refined my website three or four times and I know it's still overcomplicated for what it needs to be. But, you know, can you talk a little bit about that exercise and maybe the power of being able to kind of simplify your message through online, offline? Yeah, it's a lineup test. You know, it's sort of like a lineup in the police station. You know, can you tell any of them apart? And so, yeah, we fall in love with our own stories and our own packaging. And it goes back to the differentiation issue of how a lot of companies can't or don't want to see how they look and sound like everybody else. And so if you can get some outside perspective on this, analysts are great for this, right? In B2B, you're often going and meeting with Gartner or some of the other industry analysts. And they'll be the first to tell you that you're the 400th company that has walked through their door and told that same daggone story, you know, give us something new for crying out loud. (laughs) Different is better, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, they're a great acid test because if you can't make their eyebrow, if you can't raise their eyebrows, make them perk up, have them sit up a little bit, then you know something's off. And I've been guilty. I've worked for companies where I know we were basically putting lipstick on a pig. You know, Kathleen Booth and I talked about this in her Inbound Success podcast, which you have listened to. And the fact is that we just can't see it. And So rather than try to look for ways in which you're different, why don't you try to find all the ways in which you're like other companies? And you might be surprised at how much overlap there is. But this lineup test is uh, just a matter of stripping away the names 
and putting yourself next to several other companies in your space and see if somebody else can tell you know what's different between any of these companies and if it's hard for you i'm talking to your listeners here now but if it's hard for you to relate to any of this think about the different pr agency websites you've gone to or the different digital marketing websites you've gone to can you distinguish can you tell what is it that's different between any of these except for maybe some of the individuals who work for them but is there really anything different about the way they go about it is there really anything different about what they're telling you they can do for you and that's how your customers are seeing you when they look at you versus other people in your other companies in your space so it's useful if you step outside your own space look at the problem in someone else's space and then realize oh we're doing the same thing we're yeah. making the same mistake 100 percent. so simple but execution it takes a little more time i promise last question on in the launch area because i think with the b2b one of the unique, well, lots of uniqueness, but is you've got potentially a user that's going to use your service or technology. It really doesn't matter, technology for sure. You've got somebody that may be buying it. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. the third person who may be approving it, like a CFO. So three very different audiences that you've got to tell. Well, I guess I'm going to ask you, do you need to tell the complete story or do you have different areas where you tell the story differently to those, you know, three different individuals? Because if you go three different, then it's going to get more complicated. So I'd love to get your perspective. You've been in it a long time. How, what's the best way for a new founder to be thinking about telling that story to multiple buyers or influencers within the same company? Yeah, it can be very tricky. I've struggled with this at different clients and companies that I've worked with as an insider. But this is why that overarching vision and overarching point of view and industry perspective is so valuable. Because you have that as an umbrella that sits over top of all the different individual stakeholders and audiences that you may need to address. Now, when you get in front of a specific audience, yes, you can tailor it to that very specific audience, but you still need out in the marketplace that overarching story. It needs to be, you know, a, almost like a, a pyramid. You know, you have the top level central story and then you have different layers or different stakeholder groups that you may be targeting with different dimensions of that story as you get down in, into details in different contexts. If you're at a conference, for example, where you have users versus a conference where you have your buyers, you know, a, a simple analogy is Coca-Cola. You know, a lot of companies actually are structured this way. Coca-Cola, to name just one of many, they have their consumer who drinks the soda, and they have their bottlers who are actually their customers, right. their buyers are really the bottling companies. And then they have their other stakeholders who are investors and you know different McDonald's and companies like that that buy their product or that generate demand or that their bottlers are selling to. So, you know, even a company like that has all these different audiences and stakeholder groups that they have to accommodate. And they have their overarching brand and brand message under which everything else fits and falls. If you are finding that you're having to really have a completely different story depending on the audience, then that's a symptom of a problem.
maybe go back to the launch phase and rethink right. you know, how you're right. positioned. No, it makes sense. And I know I took us down the, a couple rabbit holes there, but maybe now we could kind of transition to the, the last two phases, if you will, the navigate and accelerate. So navigate is the, as the point at which th this is under this bucket. So it's a lot of the things we normally do. So it's marketing to your customers, sales, developing your product, delivering your product, keeping your people happy. This is a lot of what we normally would do, except there are some differences in the way you need to approach it if you really want to become the go-to. So one is that when you develop and define your product, now in launch, you defined the concept of it so that you could, you, you sort of designed it to be value oriented right. and deliver this result, deliver a result to your customer instead of functions and features. You're focused on delivering outcomes. So in Navigate, you have to make all of that a reality. The whole point behind the Navigate phase is that you lead customers along the journey to solving this problem. You navigate them along the journey, and you also walk the talk and deliver on your promises. So do your customer marketing your and sales. You create an offering that does have an outcome that customers are happy to pay more for because the value so exceeds the cost to them. And then you have all of the capabilities that underlie your organization, the processes and your organizational structure and your people and how you approach, you know, how you handle your people and your culture and all of that. So the whole purpose of Navigate is customer focused. It's delivering on your promise, getting customers to an outcome. It's getting away from that pure product orientation that a lot of companies have and having a very much a customer centric, customer driven and market centric orientation. You also in this phase develop a community of believers who are really on board with what it is you're doing. And again, it's sort of carrying that ignite phase down into the marketplace and getting the people who you sell to, to be a community of believers in your message and yeah. carry that mantle. With Accelerate, Accelerate is all about accommodating changes going on in the market. So even if you start out as a completely unique entity with a completely unique offering, of course, as you have success and as the market evolves, you're going to have Me Too's jumping in. Sure. So Accelerate is all about accelerating to stay ahead of the competition and also adapting to market changes. And then the third piece is broadening your offerings and your market. So Jeff Bezos, for example, after books, he came out with music, music and videos on Amazon. So you're broadening once you've achieved some of that traction that you're after in the marketplace. So Accelerate is absolutely critical, of course. Our world is constantly changing. And with Accelerate, you're watching what's going on on the horizon in your market, and then you're adapting to it. And then basically you start over. So it's like an orbit. You're just cycling back through that launch, ignite, navigate, accelerate constantly to take it to the next level, take yeah. each piece to the next level. And I love that. And, you know, we won't have time to get into the, the details of it, too, because really, you know, three and four, three specifically, the Navi is really about operationalizing your business, right? We could probably do a full right. podcast exactly. on, on how to do that with alignment with your customers. But, and I know you said, 
you built, you wrote the book, so it's sequential, but you can do it in parallel. But I would highly encourage at least my audience, you know, if you can't get launching night right, then you're building processes that may not be aligned with where your product is going. So really focus on getting those two and then look. And the thing I really like about the accelerate piece is back to living breathing process, right? That, Hey, you're going to get feedback from customers as it's evolving. Make sure you've got some way to get that back that it is evolving. And because if you don't, you know, too many companies didn't evolve. And, you know, I worked for one of them way back in the day called standard register, you know, oh, yeah. forms company and, you know, where they were top two player, they own the market. It started to digitize. They never figured it out. And, you know, three years later, it went from a billion dollars to, you know, bankrupt. So, how do you, <laughs> you don't want to end up like that. So even though you were a leader, it's, you know, continue to evolve or you're going to have, you know, a different set of, of challenges. So awesome. I know we're running short on time and I want to be mindful and appreciative of your time. So is there anything that we really didn't cover, you know, through the four that you'd want to mention before I get to my last two questions? Well, I think the, the key here is to really think about what will it take to achieve sustainable success in your business, in your industry? And are you on that path now? And if you're not, then I definitely recommend seeking out some help. And I do think the book is a great guide for doing that. It does give you this step-by-step approach. And even if you pick just pieces of it, even if you do just a few things that are in the book, you could immediately see a difference in your profit margins and in your positioning in the market. And this, you know, we're using the word positioning a lot as we talk about all of this, but it's much more than just putting together a positioning statement on paper. You know, we're talking about how you're literally, you know, this is a strategy. This is where you sit in the market how people view you, how, what impact you're having out there in the marketplace with customers and with the market as a whole. And so this is, it's quite profound and I think it can be extremely powerful for companies. And I hopefully have given you in the book everything you would need to go off and do it yourself if it clicks for you. Yeah. And you just basically can't just talk to talk. You got to walk it, right? You got to, you can't That's just... Right. The old days you could say it and get away with it, but now if you're not proving it with the way you operate and the way you go to market and what you deliver, it's not going to make sense. So like I said, I highly encourage folks to, to pick up this book or, you know, at least visit your website because there's a lot of really good tools and, you know, longtime listeners of this podcast, you know, Teresa's articulated <laughs> my thoughts on this much better in, you know, 30 plus minutes than I have probably in, you know, six hours of the episode. So definitely appreciate that. So last two questions, you know, what's, what's next for you and the team? The book is launched, you know, where's your focus going to be here in the, uh, say in the next quarter? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, launching this during a pandemic, of course, has been very interesting because I love being out there with people. I love being in front of audiences and I haven't been able to do that live. So of course, when things lift, I can't wait to get out in front of folks and give talks and workshops and just help people understand a little bit more about this. But I also would love to, at some point, start a membership program to help people who are following the Apollo Method actually work with each other and support each other, and also to give them ongoing tools and training. So that's something that I'm going to be looking at quite soon here. I'd say that's one of my next big initiatives. 
Okay, that's awesome. We look forward to it. We'll have to have you back on once you launch that to kind of walk us through. Like I said, we could have tried to talk for three hours today. At least I could have because there's- Oh, I love talking with you about this because you're such an expert (laughs) yourself and and you can relate to everything I'm saying. So it's so much fun. (laughs) And so I'm going to hit you with one last question, which I ask all guests. What is one thing that you would highly recommend? It could be either professional or personal. Just, you know, what's top of mind right now for you that you think all people should be thinking about or doing? Yeah, one big mistake I see a lot of people make is they watch the here and now. And I would say watch the horizon. It's the old hockey metaphor of skate to where the puck is going to end up. And so it's very important. I think a lot of people are focused on COVID right now and what that means. And yes, there are going to be some long lasting changes that come out of this, which is something we should all be studying and trying to extrapolate. But also, where is your industry going? Where are the trends? Where is the technology taking it? What are the demographic changes going on, the psychographic changes? You know, pay attention, just constantly be a constant consumer of information that looks at where things are headed. And that will give you great insight into what you could be doing for your business and where you should be taking your market that you want to yeah, I think that's such great advice. And I had a, a mentor, still do. So Charlie, if you're listening, he used to use that hockey metaphor all the time that if you're chasing the puck, you're never going to get there, but you got to anticipate where the puck's going. And, you know, you're right. We do get caught up so much in the here and now that we're not looking ahead. You Sure, you got to execute and live in the moment, but, you know, plan for the future. So no, I think that's really, really good advice and I appreciate it. So Lastly, if, if people want to reach out or learn more about you and the company and the book, where's the best place for them to track you down? Yes, well, apollomethod.com is the website. And you'll, there are links to getting the book there on Amazon. You can always go get the book on Amazon if you just type in Be the Go-To and my name in the search bar. It should bring it right up. And then the website also contains tools from the book that you can download. And I'm putting together a companion course for the book that will be out at some point soon. Just sort of recaps some of what you learn in the book because, you know, there's a lot of information. And I would recommend to people that, you know, the book contains a lot of, you know, how to, a lot of actions, and it can be easy to feel overwhelmed. So I would say do give it a quick read just to get the idea. And then you can always go back and follow it step by step when you're ready to implement. So don't get too hung up on, on the methodology. Although, of course, the sooner you implement them, the faster you'll get results. Faster to growth. Yeah, that's what I said. If you're definitely, you know, like I said, it's an easy read coming from your Accenture background. I was a little worried it was going to be the management consulting speak, but you'd actually do a really good job of, of breaking it down for anybody, whether you had a technical background or not, the ability to to kind of put this together. And, you know, it's a model that I've been using, motto I've been using, like, you know, it's kind of a walk, jog, run, right, to your point. So mm-hmm. what you're walking is, you know, read the book through, identify where your gaps are. And like I said, even if Teresa won't say that, I'm going to say, make sure you are crystal clear and nailed down on, you know, ones and two before you look at, at three and four. And it's going to give you a head start and a competitive advantage on so many companies. And I'm speaking from experience, 
people I've talked to, you know, just even looking at, you can go pull up five websites right now and you can tell if they're following your advice or not, right? Depending on what you see. So, uh, Teresa, thank you so much. This was such a valuable ex episode. And like I said, I'd love to have you back on for a part two in the, the not too distant future. And, you know, appreciate you taking a few minutes out of your schedule for us today. Well, Brett, it has been so much fun talking with you. I, I've just loved it. So thank you very much for having me. Awesome. And have a great rest of your day. We'll catch up with you soon. You too.